In this episode of the Engineering Commons podcast, we are joined by Gary Bertolini, Dean of the College of Technology at Purdue University. We talk about graphics communications, CAD software, credentials, and his efforts to implement a competency-based degree program at a Big Ten university. The Engineering Commons podcast explores challenges encountered by engineers, regardless of their field or industry. Join mechanical engineer Jeff, civil engineer Adam, and electrical engineers Brian and Carmen as they discuss issues of interest to today's engineering professional. This is episode 69, Credentials, November 13th, 2014. So Adam, you've recently received your PE license. What difference does that credential make on your day-to-day responsibilities at work? Well, at my work, um, it makes a lot of difference. I, I sign a lot of things now that I wouldn't have been able to sign uh, six months ago. Mm-hmm. Autographs? Um, a lot of autographs. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like the job of a dean. <laughs> <laughs> the good thing is a lot of them are electronic now, so that, that definitely helps. But Right. And are, are you any smarter the day after you got the license than the day before? I, I have a lot less stress in my life. Um, I don't know about smarter. <laughs> right. So it isn't that the credentials did anything for you to, to, to improve your capabilities. It's just a, a piece of paper that tells others that you are capable. Yeah. And that I went through all the, the work and effort to get there. Right. Well, that's, that's why people work so hard at it. Uh, I remember when I took the PE exam, uh, I went to a training course here locally. And people would come and I, it was, I don't know, it was 10 weeks long, you know, eight, 10, I can't remember, but it was a number of weeks long. And there were people in there that were taking the exam for the seventh and eighth time. And I thought, I, I admired their tenacity just coming back for it. But my goodness, that's a lot of times trying to take that exam and, and keep going. But they, they felt it was worth it. That is a lot of time to be, be, uh, a lot of times to be taking that exam considering what it's like in the exam, at least in my experience. Yeah. It, it was, now, is it still a full day? Yes. Yeah. But it's uh, multiple choice and a lot more problems. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I think it was 80 problems or it was either 80 problems or 80 in the morning and 80 in the afternoon. I can't remember. Yeah. Well, so so for all of us uh, as engineers, we have this problem of credentialing and getting credentials. And, and for many of us, just getting the, you know, a bachelor's degree is enough. We, we show our degree and say we, we went through a, a program of engineering and, and, you know, here's our bachelor's degree and, and that's good enough. In some fields like yours, Adam, you pretty much have to have the, the PE license, the professional engineer's license, uh, in order to practice, uh, because you're signing off on roads and buildings, that yep. kind of thing. Is that, that's right? Yep. That's right. Okay. Well, we thought we'd, uh, speak this evening with someone who's trying to change sort of the first half of that credentialing process. Uh, traditionally, you have to go to college and you have to go for your 120 credits at a single university. And it's a, sort of an all or nothing proposition. Either you you finish or you don't finish. And there's sort of no in between. And, and so uh, we're going to talk this evening about some new ideas in credentialing in engineering and engineering technology. Our guest for this episode is Gary Bertolini. He's the Dean of Purdue's College of Technology. And he's authored numerous books and papers on graphics communications and computer-aid design. And he's currently overseeing, as I mentioned, the creation of a competency-based degree in engineering technology at Purdue. Uh, Gary, welcome to the Engineering Commons. 
Oh, thank you very much. I'm looking forward to the conversation. As are we. I really appreciate your spending some time with us. So what got you interested in engineering and technology? Um, well, I've always been a, a geeky kind of person. I mean, <laughs> when I was uh, very young, I, I, uh, I mean, of course, I'm going to show my age here, but you know, some of the gifts I got from Christmas, I always used to tear apart uh, transistor radios, and I worked on my own, I restored my own 67 Mustang, and I did all kinds of, of things that were um, very technologically oriented, if you will, and, mm -hmm. and uh, it's always appealed to me. I, I, um, I'm still very interested in technology. And, it's just uh, um, I have great interest in it. But also, you know, I found out over the years that uh, technology is more than just about, you know, cars. You can actually solve some real problems that matter in the world. And then so I became a little bit more self-motivated and uh, found that there's a lot of good you can do uh, through engineering and technology. Yeah. So now a lot of your, uh, your academic work was mm -hmm. in this area of graphics communication Mm -hmm. And uh, I, so I, I see where com I know you did some work in computer aid design, but I'm I'm a little confused. Where does that all sit in? Uh, what, what's the difference between things like graphic design and graphic communication and visualization? Are those all subsets of one another? Or how, just how are they related? Yeah. So I you know I, if you think of it broadly, and this is the way I teach it and the way I've written my my textbooks. Uh, the idea of uh, graphics. Uh, Graphics is a communications medium, okay, just like language and um, text, you know, um, writings, as well as math. I mean, it's different with communicating uh, information. And uh, the power of communicating graphically uh, is um, something that engineers in general, especially students in college, don't quite understand the value of it. Mm -hmm. and, and so that's always been my premise is that there's a graphics communication. There's a way of communicating graphically, you, you know, to try and uh, communicate through other means, whether it's written or uh, math, um, these sophisticated um, engineered systems would be impossible. The use of pictures, if you will, the use of uh, graphic communication is a methodology that um, you know, good design engineers uh, really need to understand. But you really can't do good graphics if you don't visualize very well. So that's where the cognitive side comes in. And I've actually done some research in cognitive visualization and perceptualization, working with psychologists and um, others that have an interest in that field. And um, so part of it is also uh, like a freshman engineering student getting them to um, become better visualizers. And there, are, there is evidence that if you put students in the right environment and, and step them through some learning exercises, they actually can improve their visualization. But it's like it, uh, a lot of other um, skills or natural abilities. Some people are much better at it than others. And mm -hmm. So far you can move the needle, if you will, but there's still some things you can do to improve that. So it's all kind of connected. Um, and that's why I really call it graphic communications. It's really a, 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 a human uh, methodology to communicate and it's not verbal. It's not written. It's actually doing it graphically. And for engineering, 
um, there's a standard that's behind that. You know, just like in the English language, you know, how you punctuate and all those other things that go along with uh, good um, verbal communication or written communication, there are standards that you follow for graphically communicate so you can communicate um, without um, fear of misunderstanding. And so that's part of the standards that go into it. So there's there's actually a lot behind that and that's what I've tried to do with my textbooks is really bring out that appreciation for how important it is and if you're a good graphic communicator communicator you're probably going to be a, a pretty good design engineer hmm. and, and so is there any research to say that particular types of engineers need these visualization skills more is there does a chemical engineer need it more or less than an electrical engineer or something like that? Well, I think that any engineer that deals in three-dimensional space probably needs it a little bit more than some others. Mm -hmm. um, and, of course, there's different kinds of engineers. I focus more on the design you know, aspect. Um, and so design engineers that deal in three-dimensional space, I think graphic communications is uh, probably more important than other types of engineers. So a research engineer, for example, that might have advanced degrees um, and may not need graphic communications as much as someone that's more in the design field. So, Yeah. And, and so when I was uh, going through uh, uh, college as an undergrad, it was not. It was no longer a requirement that I take a drafting course, right? But I did because I I I wanted to become a designer, and I felt like, well, I I should take drafting. And and this mm -hmm. was a period where there was no computer aided design. You still right. penciled the board. Mm -hmm. um, so today's students are they? You talked about things you could do to improve visualization skills. What are are they interested in improving visualization skills? And how do you go about trying to share these uh, these exercises to improve such skills uh, with them? Yeah. Well, so what you went through is very common. Engineering, if you don't mind, I'll back up a little bit to sure. give some context to this. But, um, you know, the engineering field um, back in the 60s became uh, more theoretical and more scientific based. And so they squeezed out a lot of these more applied kinds of, of courses, and, and, and one of which was graphic communications. Now, it also depended on the discipline you're in. Uh, most of the mechanical engineering programs kept uh, some type of a, a, a drafting class or what would now be a, you know, a CAD course. Um, a lot of them kept that, um, but other fields like especially electrical and, and uh, computing engineering, they tended to drop the graphic communications. Um, but the... Uh, so there, it varies, and it really varies from university to university. Um, you know, here at Purdue, about half of the engineering disciplines still require a, a graphics course, which we teach out of our college, by the way. We, we teach it as a service course to all the engineering students, and, and we require it of all of our students in our College of Technology, um, mostly because we are more applied um, as a discipline to start with. So we never eliminated that from any of our disciplines within our College of Technology. Mm -hmm. All right. So the, the, the drafting class obviously turned into computer-aided design classes with the advent of computers. And um, as far as the transition, I actually, that was part of my, my study in my graduate school is I, I, I found out that um, you could learn 
and you can become better visualizers using computer-aided design tools just as well, if not better, than using the hand tools. Mm-hmm. And so you could basically eliminate drafting classes and replace them with computer-aided design classes. And that's kind of how I built my career. I started off at Wright <laughs> State University by creating one of the first computer design courses in the nation. That was my first textbook, which got really got me started as an author. I was then recruited to Ohio State University, and I started their computer-aided design courses for their College of Engineering. And then I was recruited away to Purdue to create the first computer-aided design courses at Purdue. I then found out that at this time, computer graphics as a discipline was really growing, and that's where I created a a new department at Purdue uh, in computer graphics technology, which Mm -hmm. still is in existence today. Someone who has to look at a lot of customer schematics and other Mm -hmm. engineer schematics, I wish drafting would come back in electrical engineering. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, that's good to hear because I, I tend to think that too. You know, it's like, um, you know, I, on the face of it, it doesn't look like an electrical engineer, you know, needs uh, graphics communication. But if you th- if you think of it the way I started off, it's simply another communications tool oh, yeah. for a human to use. And so why shouldn't, you know, an electrical engineer or whatever the discipline at least knows something about that. So you can create some sketches and you you can visualize things a little bit better and you communicate it graphically because you still need that no matter I, – I think no matter what type of engineering you're doing. Definitely. Yeah, a poorly drawn circuit diagram uh, yeah. can, can really obfuscate what the heck is going on, you know. Right. Right. And it, I'm lucky enough that I'm only dealing with switching regulators, so I know what I'm getting into ahead of time. I couldn't imagine seeing mm-hmm. some schematics for – you know, a generic op amp that it, it could go in anything in any configuration. And right. ugh, yes, drafting skills definitely need to be improved. <laughs> <laughs> when I come to power, I'll, I'll implement that. <laughs> so, Gary, do you draw any distinction between uh, I see visualization skills and I see spatial skills? Or is that mm-hmm. the, are we talking the same thing? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, the, the human mind has different ways of uh, visualizing and, and processing the information. Um, if you get right down to it, there's uh, three or four ways that we kind of uh, visualize the world. Um, but the, there's, those words are pretty much interchangeable unless you're into the research side of it. Okay. okay. Right. And, and so if you're a uh – a mid-career engineer thinking, mm-hmm. well, I want to improve my visualization skills. Mm-hmm. Any suggestions on where they might start? Um, I would say that actually computer gaming, if they're in the gaming at all, mm-hmm. uh, the three-dimensional ones where you uh, have, where it takes you into some scene, some environment where you have to kind of anticipate you know, what's around the corner or whatever, you know, yeah. some of these highly visual games actually will help you become a better visualizer because hmm. what you're doing is you're forcing your, 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 your brain, if you will, to start um, creating a visual image in your mind of something that's not there, but you're basing it on your best guess according to the environment that that's in front of you, but also what you've experienced as you started 
familiarizing yourself to the environment, okay? Yeah. And, and there is actually evidence that uh, some gamers, depending on the game, uh, actually can improve their visualization. So that would be one way of doing it. I have Tetris to thank for teaching me how to pack a car. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You've created a future argument with my wife over how much Halo I play. I will simply say, yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right. Make better visualizer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Other than that, I mean, you can go to some of these you know, graphics textbooks, and they have different exercises. You can sketch things out, and um, but the you know some people are, and I've done some study in this. They're also haptic learners, and you know so picking up three-dimensional objects and starting to sketch them uh, because the, a haptic learner likes to grasp things and they can uh, better um, communicate that graphically by manipulating the objects in their hand. The other thing you can do is you can just put uh, different objects in a bag, um, you know, preferably someone else to put it in there, right. and, and you just reach in and you, you just start – feeling it, and then you try and sketch it out. So there's all kinds of these little techniques you can try. Neat. Neat. Well, the good news is that uh, uh, you're telling us, though, that at least we can improve. We're not stuck with whatever skill we have. It's no. A, not, it's a muscle we can make stronger. Exactly. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. Terrific. Terrific. Well, so now within that, uh, the big area of, of graphics communication, we have the sort of subset of computer-aided design. Right. And I just wondered, we've we've come during your career. We've come so far. We started oh, with uh, with what's uh, I guess considered the first sort of CAD system, which was the little sketch pad uh, program that I think that was from MIT. Yes, it was. Uh, mm -hmm. And then and then these days we have things like SolidWorks and ProE and very sophisticated three D modelers. And just so, any thoughts on you know sort of the evolution of of where we've come in the past thirty years and where it looks like we're going. Well, um, so Sketchpad was created at MIT, a dissertation by Sutherland was his name. Mm -hmm. uh, they actually ended up uh, creating a computer graphics company that was located in Utah. And, um, you know, it's like any other technology. Uh, at the start, there were, there were dozens of CAD companies, if you will, okay? And there was a lot of... Uh, uh, companies that didn't make it, okay. all right? And right now, um, we probably have, I mean, there, there's a good number, but it's not like it was back in the uh, early, well, late 70s, early 80s. Um, a lot of companies uh, fell by the wayside. So yeah. we have these uh, companies that uh, have made it, you know, Autodesk. Um, we have uh, Dassault Systems which kind of evolved out of what IBM was doing at one point. And um, so the companies that are on right now, um, they are very, very sophisticated. They're well-funded. Um, they continue to uh, make progress, but it's not just CAD. What they've done is they've, they're looking at companies as an enterprise. And so they're, they're, they keep on expanding their reach, if you will. So uh, really, computer-aided design is a small part of what these larger companies are doing now. And, and they're, they're bringing in manufacturing simulation and um, you know, process control. And they're, they're looking at it as the whole enterprise, and they keep on adding uh, features to their software. And so, you know, 
you can be kind of like a CAD operator or a design engineer, but you're only scratching the surface as far as all the capabilities that you have around a CAD system. Um, it started um, probably, let's say, about 15 years ago. Um, product lifecycle management, PLM, started really catching on, and that's the whole idea that uh, you, know, you control the processes you, as much as possible from the, the initial thought um, the initial design mm-hmm. um, through maintenance, you know, through the manufacturing, through the maintenance, the testing, and all these other things. And so they started making these software programs much more sophisticated and, and a much broader reach as far as what the product can do. And so we've gone well beyond, you know, what you would normally think of as a CAD system, but these companies started as CAD systems. And, and so, it, in other words, SAP, SAP, didn't really, um, hasn't gone in this direction. It's all the CAD companies that, that have, have, have been the starting point to broaden the reach. It didn't come from the outside, if that if I'm making sense. Yeah. That's where we're at right now. And they keep on becoming much more sophisticated because they keep on adding these modules and these areas so that they can have a much broader reach looking at the, the company, you know, as an enterprise and seeing what they can do. And part of this is based on the whole idea of creating a digital model. And the digital model of your design, your product, um, really drives almost everything in the organization. And so that's the philosophy that is now behind uh, CAD systems is that the digital model, and they're all 3D now, so your, your three-dimensional digital model uh, drives the whole enterprise. And you keep on, you know, you keep on using that model. You draw out the information you need for whatever it is, whether you're, um, you know, uh, working on the manufacturing simulation or you're looking at maintenance, uh, you're looking at training, all this stuff is driven by that initial three-dimensional model that was mm-hmm. uh, started, you know, in the mind of a design engineer. Yeah. Now, I'm kind of curious, uh, uh, Brian and Carmen, so the CAD systems, a different type of CAD system gets used a lot in electrical engineering. Mm-hmm. But I'm just I'm kind of curious as we move towards my understanding is that the the you know uh, IC design and that kind of stuff is becoming more three dimensional. Are we going to be? Do you know of? Are we moving towards electrical CAD systems or or design systems that are that have more three D features? Or, or is there going to be this integration of of the electrical and mechanical CAD systems? Well, right now most P, most decent PCB software. Uh, You'll spend at least part of your time doing three-dimensional layout, uh, so it's it's mm-hmm. it's become very easy to import step files of, uh, I guess, your connectors and ICs and large capacitors and magnetics to check clearance stuff like that. So it, it, it's already there to a certain degree, but um, you know, for the most part, it's a two D game. Yeah. So, I mean, when you're doing design, though, your go-to system when you start is not SolidWorks or Pro-E or no, but no, or the but, mechanical uh, pack. T- traditionally, but mechanical it's, packaging. It's pretty common to kind of throw designs back and forth. So you'll you'll do the layout, hmm. and then you'll send you'll send that design over to somebody using um, SolidWorks to do a fit check. You know, for the enclosure. Mm-hmm. 
Sure. Okay. Yeah. Not so. Maybe go ahead, Carl. No, I was going to say I, I don't know if there's any three dimensional stuff in actual IC design itself. Um, you know, if you're laying out chips at the transistor level, definitely two D. Um, I suppose you would if you were going to do any kind of modeling. You know, some E and M modeling. You might try to mock something up in like HFSS or something, but. Nothing, I don't think, built in the CAD packages, but I don't use them that much, so couldn't tell you. Okay, you get you, you used a, a, a abbreviation there I wasn't familiar with. Oh, HF HFSS. Don't ask me what it stands for. Uh, it's some <laughs> kind of EM modeling software. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, there's also ANSYS to A N S Y S, and they're they're three dimensional, you know, EM solvers. So I guess if you're trying to, you know look for coupling and interconnects or vias or something, you might maybe mock up a system there too, but there's usually solvers built into the cadence or mentor graphics suites. So okay. I don't know how so, often so, you would do that, but someone might. Right. So big picture, the uh, we're moving towards being integrated, but there's still a little ad hoc well, integration. It, yeah. It's, it's integrated. Systems. It's just, it's of limited use. I mean, you do use it. I mean, it's, Oh, it's often the, yeah, yeah. You might use it more for board design and product design yeah. than actual IC design. Yeah, you. It's okay. really the, generally the first thing and the last thing you do is you know moving your three dimensional components around. But in terms of the actual layout of your right. board, you know, even though you have a multi multi layer stack up, you still treat it like you know overlapping two dimensional drawings. Right. Right. Yeah, I know some of our customers are definitely doing it, um, especially, you know, as you start putting, you know, putting together a new tablet design or new, one of these real thin MacBook Airs or Ultrabooks, uh, height becomes very important. And we typically get requests for reference designs and none of our components can be over, you know, three or four or two millimeters or whatever, depending on how stringent their customers' requirements are. So mm -hmm. it's happening at some point down the line. Okay. Okay. And and so Gary, are students as en enamored and enthralled with CAD as I was when I first saw it? Uh, I would say not. <laughs> you know, Man, I'm old. Is, you know, the a lot of them get some exposure in high school now, and so it's not a uh, a big deal. But it, but there was a time that I I know exactly what you're talking about. It was it was. Uh, incredible the amount of interest and enthusiasm you get from these students coming from high school who never really had that ability especially when we started moving into 3d modeling that really seemed to excite students but you know there's a small number that still um, get excited and it's because their passion is more towards design engineering these are mostly mechanical and um, you know engineers they they some of those tend to get pretty excited just because the the sophistication of the tools. Once we show them some of the other capabilities, they will get excited. But broadly speaking, I would say not. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. and, and are there any features in CAD that are coming along? You know, advanced research that is you, that you know gets you excited. That says, "Wow, this is this is neat stuff." Well, again, I think it's uh, more of the integration, the seamless, the way you can seamlessly move uh, between different processes that you do as you go through and you design and mock up and and manufacture. Um, it, it's it's pretty cool to 
you know, take an initial design and run some, you know, some uh, analysis on it and see the, um, the results of that. Immediately update your model, uh, take the model and, and do some mock-ups in, in uh, like a, um, everything from, you know, some ways of representing the project using actually, you know, what a few years ago would have been uh, movie quality lighting, <laughs> okay, <laughs> um, to create some very stunning images of what the product might look like. Um, and, and even, you know, having some animation showing it, um, how it might move, um, simulation if it's if it's true you know physics based otherwise you can animate it and just right. see what it looks like in some environments so there's a difference between animation and simulation but you can do both um and then uh, you know mock it up and show how it might move down a production line uh, that that to me is is incredible and to be able to do all that stuff from the same software interface because the the system has integrated all those things is I think is really powerful. I'm obviously showing that you know my my interest is in more mechanical and, and product design. Um, mm-hmm. but for me, that that really gets me excited. Yeah. Okay. Well, why don't we? Uh why don't we move into talking about uh, credentialing since that's uh, mm-hmm. the, the topic for uh, this episode. We're always so good at uh, segues. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, this isn't an, a, uh, an extensive list or anything. I just thought we'd talk about some of the various credentials that, that we know exist so we could something to reference about. So mm-hmm. I, I, at, the, at the top of the, uh, the podcast, I talked about university de- degrees and everybody seems to know what a, you know, a diploma looks like. And, mm-hmm. you know, a, some, a university is signing off and said, you've, you've done well enough to, to pass this hurdle. We talked with Adam about his PE license and that's another one where mm-hmm. you have to get the, in this case, at least when I got my PE, you, you need three or four other PEs to sign off that they'd seen you do work of quality. Uh, of, of high enough quality, you had to pass the test. You had to write a brief essay. You got that license, but that was a uh, uh, the one thing that was interesting about that was his pass, no pass. You know, I was talking about the people that were taking it for the seventh or eighth time. If they got their PE license on the eighth time, their license didn't say anything different than mine did getting it on the first time. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are academic certificates if you can. Uh, in, in certain universities, you can go back and get a certificate that you've studied a certain uh, uh, topic. Uh, you can get pr- – there are professional certificates. Uh, so if you want to be a certified uh, computer technician, there are – you know, you can go back and get certificates for that kind of thing. And and then there, there are these – this concept of digital badges, which are coming on big. They seem to be gathering attention. And quite honestly, I'm still a little confused by – exactly how that all works and, and how one exchanges digital badges. You know, people know what a university degree is. How do people know what this digital badge is? Uh, and sort of, the, and the last thing that, that I, I quite honestly, I think are, is important are, are project artifacts. If someone comes to me, I don't, and says, I can do X, Y, Z. I care somewhat about their degrees and their academic credentials, but if they can show me, you know, they have pictures of an XYZ they've designed and built, or they have, you know, uh, they can talk about how they developed some process, you know, a chemical process or a biomedical process or something. 
I'm just about as impressed by those the artifacts, uh, their writings, their pictures, their their uh, development boards, as I am by the the academic degrees, that kind of thing. Uh, so, is is Gary? Is that sort of uh, you know is that sort of a general overview? Are those the credentials we're we're familiar with? I would say so. That's covered uh, the most common by far, and. and Obviously, with degree programs, you have different levels, right? You can get an associate. There's actually an associate of applied science. There's you know bachelors. There's masters, PhDs. There's doctorates. There's different things people have tried over the years to broaden, you know, what a degree is. But yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, you've covered pretty much what I would call. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, so with that that as background, let's start in with. I know that within within the, the uh, Purdue Polytechnic Institute, you're trying to change things to competency-based, or you're trying some competency-based uh, degrees. But let, before we get into that, can you tell us something about this, uh, this new venture you're into, this poly, uh, Purdue Polytechnic Institute? Okay, so how many hours do we have? <laughs> well, well, we'll try to keep it down to one or two. No, okay. My computer says I got enough for where's the recording thing? Like seventy hours here, so we're good. Oh, okay, That's we're good. Go. All right. Well, um, because this is a a, a really um, a large initiative, and, and I w- I will I will promise not to take an hour, and I'll do the, my best <laughs> to give you the uh, uh, shortened version. But this is a this really is a transformative effort um, in, in many dimensions, and I'll come back to you know your your question. But um, the competency base, which is what we're moving towards, the the College of Technology at Purdue University actually is a, a very very rare kind of college at what we refer to in this nation as research intensive universities. In fact, the Carnegie. Foundation, you can actually Google this. You can uh, look up very high research intensive universities and, um, it'll spit out the 108 universities that they have decided through Carnegie classification, um, what are, um, very high research intensive universities. Purdue is one of them. Mm-hmm. All the Big Ten universities, okay, or fifth, Big fifteen, whatever we are right now, (laughs) (laughs) they're all uh, research-intensive universities, and so you know you could say the same thing about all the major sports conferences is one of the best ways of doing it. So the SEC conference and the Pac-10 and all those kinds of things. But then you throw in the Ivy Leagues and some of the privates um, that are around the nation, and you've come up with these one hundred and eight research-intensive universities. If you look at all of these. 108 universities. The University of Cincinnati has a couple of what we would call engineering technology programs. Um, the University of Houston does have a college of technology. It's much smaller than uh, the one that's at Purdue. Um, there was one at the um, Arizona State University, but it's been recently integrated into their College of Engineering. And, and the history of that, by the way, is that all the engineering technology programs ended up being killed off because that's the history of it. Mm. Um, and then um, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. Okay. And so 
Now, there's a lot of other uh, colleges and technologies, but they're at what I would call the, like the tier two universities. So in, in the Midwest, some of the examples are Ball State University, um, Central Michigan University, Northern Illinois, now Southern Illinois. So, you know, you get these smaller colleges of technology, but they're all looking to Purdue for um, leadership because we were the first college of technology in the nation. Hmm. But we were chartered in 1964, so 50 years ago. So think about what technology was in 1964, you know, which you'd have to, most of you probably would have to go to a history book because you might not have even lived through it. It's been, you know, and so, you know, you can just guess what the technology difference is between 1964 and 2014. Right. And so I, I believe that the College of Technology has to recharter itself. The other thing that, that's put, to put this in context, and this doesn't just apply to the College of Technology, it applies to every university in this nation. Most of the universities in the nation, in this nation, came about as a result of the industrial age, okay? And, um, and things have really, really changed from the industrial age. Uh, mm -hmm. We're obviously way beyond the industrial age. This is really the digital age. It's really about uh, information and, and knowledge and the communication and sharing of that. Um, it's, it's a very, very different world, which I'll come back to in some of, hopefully some of the other conversations we might have because it has big implications as far as higher ed in general. But the polytechnic is, is nice. I selected that word specifically because of the historical context of what a polytech is. So the first polytechnic um, in the world was the Ecole Polytechnic that was uh, started in Paris, France in 1794. And um, it still is in existence. Uh, it's a very, very fine um, engineering uh, university, but it was the first university uh, that was created for the engineering professions. Now think back of what it was like in 1794. It was, it was the emergence of the industrial age and mm -hmm. a new discipline had to be created to support the emergence of this, um, you know, societal transformation that was going on called the industrial age. What I'm claiming is that, that we have moved beyond the industrial age. No one has really taken on this idea that if we've moved beyond the industrial age and just as we created engineering as a profession, shouldn't we also look at maybe the emergence of a new profession that will facilitate this new age? It, and I'm not saying that you, you eliminate other disciplines like engineering or science or anything else, just because we're in a different age, what I'm suggesting is that there's an opportunity to actually create a new type of discipline. And I claim that this is the age of technology. And it's, it's the age of technology because I believe that um, what is going to drive nations and economies is not only the engineering and science that goes behind the technologies that emerge, but it's those people that understand the role of technology in society and industry and how to integrate the technologies in new and uh, new ways that uh, really advance 
and create an innovative, constantly changing type of, uh, of economy that really will help a nation succeed. And so the idea behind the Polytechnic is that this is the 21st century version of the original Polytech that was based on engineering as a profession. And I'm claiming that what we need in this era is a Polytechnic about technology integration and the focus on technology, which emerges from good science and good engineering. Mm-hmm. Does that do you, do you see where I'm going with that? And so that's why it's it's actually a, a very much a transformative kind of initiative. We are literally taking a college that's actually very large and very successful and attempting to transform it from within to do what we believe is important to help this nation move forward. And, and that's uh, what's gotten the attention of our university and actually all over the nation. I, um, and it, this competency base is just, uh, degree is just one artifact, if you will, of this transformational effort. And this competency based degree, when we announced it about six weeks ago, I, there is not a day that passes that someone around the country is not contacting me to talk with me. I mean, I, literally, there's a, a vice president um, from the University of Wisconsin that sent me an email this morning, and I'm meeting with him on Friday because he's going to be on campus. This morning, I had a conference call with a consultant for the Lumina Foundation and the Bill Gates Foundation because they're interested in what Purdue is doing in the competency-based degree. So there's a tremendous amount of interest in what we're doing, and everyone's trying to figure out what does the 21st century graduate really need to be, especially in the STEM discipline. So that is collapsing my two hour. (laughs) (laughs) What I'd like to talk about for two hours as best I could into, you know, what the Polytechnic is really about. Right. Okay. And I think it is, uh, for those who who, uh, don't know exactly what the, the structure is, you're, you're basically doing a bit of a juggling act in that you are continuing to run the College of Technology as it has been run, but at the same time, you're creating and building this polytechnic and running them for the time being in parallel. And my understanding is you're slowly, your concept is you're going to slowly transfer operations and ideas from the College of Technology into the polytechnic. That's exactly right. Yep. And and we have... Uh we have a group that we're calling an incubator. They're the ones that are, are helping us to define what that transformation looks like. And we're, they're experimenting and making and breaking. And then we have the accelerator. And that group is taking the best ideas from the incubator and, and integrating it into our college of technology with the idea that in about three years, we will have transformed the entire college and, and that's when it actually becomes the true polytechnic, as I tried to describe earlier. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so are there any, uh, besides the, the uh, transformation of, you know, this creation of a new degree and the, the competency-based um, 
assessment, which we'll get to in a minute. Mm-hmm. Are there any other, you know, big pillars to, to what you're trying to accomplish with the polytechnic? Yeah. So um, one is the, the, the transformation of the undergraduate curriculum. And so I don't know if any of you have heard of what's called the technology S curve. And uh, yes. you can Google, yeah, okay. So you can Google that. It's kind of an S that's laid on its side, if you will. Um, but you can Google it and get an image of it. But what I've done is I've actually overlaid curriculum, okay, how curriculum in the 21st century should overlay on top of the technology S-curve. And the idea behind the technology S-curve is that coming out of the research labs, you know, the, the science and engineering research labs, in, uh, some technology starts developing. And there's the hype cycle that basically – you know, gets it started. People get very enthused about its potential, but, you know, somehow it never quite reaches it. And it's simply because it's not mature enough and we don't really know how to take that technology and do good things with it. And, and it's kind of, it's kind of slows down. So the curve starts, you know, falling back down. But then, you know, the researchers continue to work. Uh, industry starts picking up on it and suddenly, it starts taking off, and so now the curve starts bending back upward again. And so, you know, the graduate programs in this nation are really, um, you know, dealing with the start of the S curve. And actually, when it starts falling off after the initial hype, they continue to do that development work. And as it comes out of that um, fall off, if you will, and it starts accelerating and the technology becomes adopted, that's when this new type of polytech has to jump in and figure out what we need to do to prepare the workforce for that emerging technology. Now, this might sound a little bit more vocational in nature, but it actually isn't because you're getting in very, very early and you're anticipating that this development is going to be taking part because it, remember industry is the ones that's also starting to help accelerate that curve. Um, and then what happens is that as the technology matures, it basically is handed off, the curriculum side of it, it's handed off to community colleges and vocational technical schools because the, the uh, technology has become commoditized, right? Mm-hmm. And and then you start getting the flattening, and that's the end of the the S. And but what happens is parallel to it, around industry sectors or large areas like computing or construction, you know, civil whatever, th- there's another S curve that's starting of some related kind of technology. And so you you know the polytechnic would then start jumping into that next one. It's not like you're starting over because the computing faculty will simply move over to another emerging technology that's related to their basic core competencies in computing. And and so, you know, we go from server-based, um, you know, computing to cloud computing, for example. That's not a big jump, but, you know, you still have to make that jump. And so what we're trying to do is create an environment uh, within the polytechnic that says that our degree programs actually have life cycles. And hmm. so, you know, if you, you know, if you look uh, at mechanical engineering at most uh, uh, research intensive universities, they've been around for at least 100 years and they should be and they should probably be around for another 100 years because the nature of that discipline is, is more stable, if you will. But what I'm talking about is, is um, 
you know, disciplines that kind of come and go. Um, I mean, at least within a polytechnic, again, they're to sustain, but they become commoditized and, you know, they become more simpler. And, and so you can teach them at community colleges. And so that's the idea behind you know, the polytechnic is you're constantly innovated and it's based on this idea of a technology S curve. If we don't do that, um, I don't know how we can keep up with what's happening. This is why higher ed has all these pressures on it right now. This is why you have MOOCs that are popping up. I mean, you have people that, you know, they, I mean, these are, you know, young kids, they see that it's like, wow, there's, why aren't you teaching me this stuff, right? You know, I've been home, you know, learning about this on my own or you, you, you know what I mean? I, I, I'm having these experiences because of the technology that I use just because it's part of my life. And you aren't even talking about it in class, right? And, and, and so we have to do something in higher ed. And I believe it's, it's, it's through this 21st century version of a polytechnic that we can address that part of the, um, higher education continuum that we need in, in STEM education. And, and it's through this, as I said, the 21st century polytechnic. Well, and that's a, the idea of, of putting a, uh, Having having a limited uh, life on a degree program is kind of a novel concept in yeah, most universities. It is, it is absolutely. Now, I can I can't tell you that all my uh, faculty have adopted this idea, <laughs> 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 and so um, it's been a real challenge. I mean, just today I met with our, my leadership team, and we had a three hour meeting where we're going through all of our degree programs, and you know. It's like I, this is the analogy I use. Um, you know, when was the last time you heard of a union um, voluntarily closing a plant? Right? You know, that's I don't know, kind of hard to come up with an example of that. Well, the same thing happens with faculty. It's like you know, you're asking faculty, well, uh, let's vote on on eliminating our department and trust the dean because he's going to come up with something for you. Okay, that's right. a totally <laughs> different mindset and a different culture, right? And it's like. Well, yeah, you need to trust me. I just explained to you why we're going to do this. And so I don't want you uh, teaching the basics of uh, networking right now. I want you to move into some related area to networking that's uh, more applicable to, you know, what's emerging right now. Um, but getting getting faculty to start thinking in that way is, is uh, culture change. And that's why I think that it's going to take us three years to truly become a a polytechnic because, you know, if you look at change management and you're changing culture, it's really a three to five year process. You don't do that overnight. No. <laughs> and, and the competency-based degree is part of this whole effort, by the way. Okay. Uh, right. The, the underpinning of this is that if you're going to look at changing the curriculum, we made a decision, well, why don't we also talk about uh, how we go about changing the learning experience at the same time. And just because you're book smart doesn't necessarily mean that uh, you're going to be, um, you know, highly sought after in the 21st century, um, you know, economy and, and what the industry needs are. Mm -hmm. And and we also want to be able to better measure students' passion. And this is the part I really love. Uh, the idea that... Um, you have a student that um, you're teaching them some top topic and you give them some type of a project and they start uh, getting into it and suddenly they find out, you know, I'm really interested in, 
in this technology or, you know, um, this part of the assignment. And they start on their own because they're self-motivated to learn more. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's really no way of giving the student credit for that. So, you know, they, they list on their resume that they took a thermodynamics class, right? Okay. Right. So, uh, and, and this is the, another, you know, thing. And, and let's say they got a C in it. Okay. Well, what does that really mean? Um, did you flunk one of the units in, in thermodynamics? Right. And which unit was that? And is that important to my company? Okay. That, and what we're doing? Because, yeah. you know, if you get a C, is it because you're average across it or did you actually not really learn something? How do you really know uh, with that? Now, if you get an A, you can, you make an assumption that they actually have mastered everything, but, you know, with curves and everything else, you know, someone might grade on that isn't even guaranteed that you actually are competent in what you need to know about thermodynamics, especially in how that company applies it, right? Right. The idea behind a competency is that you would actually list out what your competencies are related to thermodynamics. And if you decided to go very, very deep into it in a particular aspect of thermodynamics because you're self-motivated you could you could have those as additional badges okay or additional competencies and so what we're talking about is creating um basically two transcripts one has your your regular courses okay listed out with with possibly a grade we don't we think short term we need to do that long term we're unconvinced that grades are the best thing to do but then you'll have another transcript which basically lists out all your competencies and now as an as a employer you can look at particular areas that you believe are really important to your company and you can see what competencies that the student uh, you know earned and you have a much richer understanding of what the capabilities of what that student is after they've graduated. And so you don't have to just depend on a GPA um, because, as we all know, there's holes in there, just as the example I just gave. You know, if you get a C, what exactly did you learn or not learn? Uh, right. That could be brought into question. Right. So, so if you have a student who studies some topic in thermodynamics, let's say, mm-hmm. Uh, and they claim a competency in an understanding of entropy. Mm-hmm. Uh, how does how, how does that get assessed in the in the typical in the typical typical academic setting? There's a grade or a test given, an yes. exam, and you score so well, and that's how you determine. So if the yeah. student claims this knowledge, how uh, how are you testing it? So there's a the, it's a blended model. At least that's the direction we're going in. So. A lot of the learning they're going to be doing will be more on their own, um, where they're going to learn the basics of uh, you know, the foundational principles, if you will. Let's call them the foundational engineering principles like thermodynamics. Or, and and so there will be some measure of, of test taking, whether they're as formal and as as uh, rigid, if you will, as, as what we have right now, more than likely not. We would prefer that we put you in an environment, and um, we call it learn by doing, where you can actually show us that you have mastered this. So it, there, part of it is, you know, 
um, more traditional kind of testing, but the emphasis isn't on the test. The emphasis is more on learn by doing or learn by showing us that you actually um, can do that. Now, we can't do that with every uh, topic. So there will be some underlying test taking that's probably going on or some type of assessment, mm-hmm. um, whether it's a test or not, um, doesn't have to be. But we would prefer that you actually show us that you've earned that competency by what you can do with the competency. How do you, how can you apply that? Because we believe that if you can apply what you've learned, the theory, then you really, really have a deeper understanding for what that theory is. And that's a much richer kind of uh, learning environment. And so the the premise that we're using is not only are we creating a competency-based degree, but we're transforming the undergraduate learning experience at the same time. And so what we're doing is we're integrating the disciplines um, and so we have right now an experimental cohort of students going through this polytechnic um, way of doing things. And so uh, we, have, we uh, recruited 35 freshman students uh, to start um, this fall. And um, that cohort of students have a cohort of professors so we have a communications professor from the comm department. We have an English professor from the English department. Um, we have our technology faculty, okay, that are uh, working with them. And then we have, this one might really sound off the wall, but we have a theater design professor from the, our theater department because we're, we want to integrate creativity as much as possible um, into what they're doing. And, and the students meet in as a cohort. And on Mondays and Wednesdays, they meet from noon to 4 p.m. So it's a block of time. That's what we call the design labs. And we give them open-ended design problems. Mm-hmm. And then on Tuesdays and Thursdays, uh, they meet from 12 to 4. And um, those are seminars. And so there's different topics that are given to them that are shorter term. And all the, the all the professors work in a team based environment, and so if you have a you're given a design problem to solve, and and one of the things you need to do is do a presentation at the end to present your design solution. That's where the the com professor actually will step in, and now they're learning communications in context, and the English professor will step in because they have to do the technical report that goes along with it, and so the students are learning things in context, and what we're finding is that the students actually kind of like common English, (laughs) 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 believe it or not, because they they understand what you can do with it, and it helps them to communicate what it is that they um, have done, because in many cases, they're very proud of their design solution, and they can now communicate it better, and and the professors now have a role as mentors and as coaches, and not standing up in front of them for 50 minutes lecturing and and giving them some kind of an assignment that's made up and there's no connection back to their their love which is their you know their discipline whatever Mm -hmm. their major is and that's what we're trying to do is integrate everything at the same time and that's a much richer experience and that's where the competencies start happening we have many examples of students that because they're constantly working in these teams 
and the teams are made up of, of students from uh, any one of our six uh, departments in the college, uh, they start finding out that, and I, this is a, exactly what happened. I talked to one of the students the other day. He's our, one of our mechanical engineering technology students, and one of his lab partners is from our computer graphics department. And he, he saw what the computer graphics students was working on to gain his core competencies in computer graphics in the freshman year. Mm-hmm. And this MET student decided that he also wanted those competencies because, you know, it was CAD-related, some of them, right? And right. that helps him become a better uh, mechanical engineering technology uh, student. And so he, on his own, he is earning the badges and the competencies of, of part of the computer graphics program. And we didn't have to beg him. We didn't have to force him. Um, he's doing it all on his own because he's, we call it unleashing the student and finding the student's passion. And it's surprising how much students actually like to learn if you put them in the right environment. <laughs> Revolutionary, right? Yeah. And I think you've all experienced this. You're all, you know, you've all have graduated, um, you know, from universities. Some of you or all of you may have advanced degrees. I mean, you didn't do that because, you know, someone forced you. At some point, you got to the point where you actually liked what you were doing, right? And, and even if you had to go through a thermodynamics class and you really didn't care for it, it was an end to a means because there are other things that you were doing that really motivated you. And that's what helped you get through. Um, but think about doing that from your freshman year and, and basically waking up every day and being self-motivated no matter what class you're doing because it all makes sense to you now. Uh, English is not uh, disconnected from you know, your discipline. Right. And uh, that's really um, one of the more transformative features of what we're doing in the polytechnic. And this goes back to what I said before. The 21st, the needs of the 21st century workforce is very, very different than what it was in the uh, industrial age. And uh, when you talk to business and industry uh, and what they describe what they want out of graduates, um, it's uh, it's very different than the way higher education is set up right now. And I can talk about that a little bit later if you want to. It's called the T-shaped professional, but there's uh, a lot of evidence that that's what industry wants. Okay. Well, let's uh, we'll do that in a few minutes. Sure. Uh, I, I want to. I've got a few more questions about this credentialing. Mm-hmm. Sure. <laughs> so, so uh, you talked about uh, students being assigned projects. What if mm-hmm. they? You know, you have an inspired pro- uh, student that finds a project on their own. They go out and they build their own. I don't know, mm-hmm. their own drone aircraft or, sure. or something. So, do they get? Are it, can they form a competency, a credential, a badge, something around that, or does do the professors only tell them what the what the p- potential competency badges are? Well, to start with, uh, you know, the professors are going through, you know, their courses, uh, and and this even includes, you know, we have to work with the English department and the math department and everything to, to talk about what their competencies are. Um, but, you know, in our discipline, ABET, ABET, that ABET is the accreditation agencies for engineering technology. They they have already moved to this idea of competencies or learning outcomes, which are effectively the same thing. So we don't have very far to go to figure out what 
our competencies are for different courses in our discipline. When you go out to English and, you know, math and some of those, although they're starting to talk about it, we actually have to sit down with those professors and define what the competencies are. And we're in the process of doing that. But the example that you said about someone who, you know, goes off and decides that, you know, they want to really get in the drones because it's part of their, their lab or their design or whatever. Ideally, what we want to do is find someone, and we have a very large campus, there's someone doing work in drones, okay? I know that for a fact, okay? Right, right. And we would simply ask them to help us with, you know, can you give us some core competencies, um, you know, around drones or, you know, maybe you talk to the student or the student, uh, you know, submits something to that professor. Uh, this is, I mean, we just had this, this competency-based uh, degree idea approved, uh, well, funded by the university um, late in September. So, I mean, we, we're learning as we go, if you will, because there, this, by the way, uh, Purdue is the first research-intensive university in the nation to do a competency-based degree. So again, we don't have any peers right now, and so we're kind of making this up as we go. Um, right? Maybe I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> <laughs> we won't tell the recording. <laughs> but we are. I mean, we're. I mean, that's the part of being a pioneer, right? I mean, you have to go out and. You make tough decisions. You turn left or right at the fork in the road, kind of, or whatever, the stream, I guess, if you're a pioneer. Um, but we have to make some of these decisions and do the best we can. Um, but uh, there's a lot of details that, that we're still working on. But that's a really good question, and, we, and we're starting to think about that because that's exactly right, because students might end up moving off into some other area. Yeah. So let me ask a, a couple of maybe off the wall questions, but sure. but sort of carrying this out to the extreme, I, I think. Well, if I am a a hiring uh, firm, I, I'm an employer, mm -hmm. and let's say I'm you know GM, and I want my students to ha or, or my employees to have a certain background in yeah. thermo, but a mm -hmm. certain amount of design, a certain fluids, mm -hmm. whatever. But I really don't care uh, whether they had. Uh, a lot of time spent in kinematics, mm -hmm. you know, actually probably GM would care about kinematics, yeah. but you know, so what would, so at some point I'm wondering if, if this ends up degrading the value of the university degree, because GM says, well, if you want to come interview with us, here's, here's our set. You need this list of competencies. We don't care where you get them from, where you accumulate them from. You could get some from Purdue, you could get some from university of Illinois, you could get some from, uh, you know, Topeka, you, mm -hmm. wherever. Uh, so at, at some point, does the employer start to define the competencies they want? And is that really a problem for the university? Well, I think that uh, industry should have more input. Um, and um, if this is an opportunity for industry to better define the competencies that they believe are important for an industry, I, I hope it wouldn't, wouldn't get to what GM needs. I would hope it would be the automotive industry, right, to a little right. bit more broaden. Um, but that that's actually one of the premises behind the polytechnic is that um, we are working directly with industry to better define, you know, the needs of the graduate for the 21st century. So we do want their input. 
we would like them to you know talk to us about you know the competencies that they feel are important and uh, by industry sector there might be areas that we might want to um, give students opportunities with mm-hmm. um, part of what we're doing and I'll, I'll come back to the core question but I haven't talked about this is we are moving towards requiring in semester internships and the reason we do that because if you look at the Purdue calendar your internship could go from basically January 10th to August 1st which is a much longer period of time or you can go from like May 10th to December 10th right and so by doing it in semester you get a much longer experience with the company mm-hmm. well there's competencies that could be earned there and if they want to go to GM and the and the student has a strong interest in the automotive industry you know we could work directly with GM so while they're there they might be learning certain competencies that the industry would um define in addition to that we're we also are moving towards um year-long industry-sponsored senior capstone projects. And so, again, there's going to be a much closer relationship with industry. They define the project. They would uh, assign mentor, a mentor or mentors to the student group that's working on the project. It's a year-long, so the sophistication of the project would be much greater. In some cases, we're actually looking at this being a thesis-based uh um, project. So not only do they deliver on the the design project or the capstone experience, it doesn't have to be designed, um, but there would be a basically a thesis that would run behind it that uh, the students would write. And so that's where the industry interaction becomes. Now, will this cheapen the um, degree? Well, it could. Uh, it depends on how you look at it. I mean, um, I'm talking about this for our program, our, you know, the technology program. Uh, I'm not sure engineering wants to do this. I'm not sure science wants to do this either. So I'm not saying that um, this is a good idea for other disciplines. But when I look at our discipline and I look at this this idea of the way I describe the polytechnic of the 21st century, I, I don't think it cheapens it. I actually think it brings more value to it because of the type of person that we're graduating. Now, whether they can go somewhere else and get the competencies, well, that actually isn't that different from what happens right now. A lot of students, because of the expense of higher ed, they will actually go to their home in the summer, you know, away from West Lafayette, for example, and um, they – um, you know, will be earning money through some job or an internship they have, and they'll go to a community college and pick up a math class, right? Because it's very cheap, <laughs> and right. and we transfer the credits in. And so you could say, well, a math course from a community college cheapens the experience from Purdue, but we've been doing that for decades, right? And every other university does it. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure there's a big difference there. And, and I'm not convinced that it's bad for. Uh, I'm not convinced that it's bad for the student or the or society at large. Uh, right. If 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 this is the if this is the background and the knowledge and the skill and the and the uh, the awareness that the student needs and that our economy needs and society needs, then who cares how we get that? Whether it's through a, you know, whether you're you're waving a diploma or you're waving a a pouch of digital badges, yeah. who cares? Right. 
Yeah. I think that's the case, but, you know, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is all uh, – we pitched this idea to industry. Now, they love the whole polytechnic idea. I, re- I literally had – two vice presidents in my office last week from GM. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Good, good example. One runs the proving grounds. Okay. I mean, there's a huge, I mean, it's six, 8,000 engineers working for him. And he, they're both Purdue grads, by the way. I have to put that plug in. <laughs> <laughs> but I explained to him the polytechnic and what we're doing. And I'm telling you, they just, and I, I'll refer to this T-shaped professional again, because I showed him the graphic of what that was. And I mean, I could hardly get them out of my office. I had a right. woman this morning who's um, the representative for – Purdue is working with the, the nation of Columbia. And Columbia is, is moving towards kind of adopting Purdue as the model university and working with Purdue University to help them transform higher education. Mm-hmm. And so I was talking to this woman who who is jointly hired between uh, the nation of Columbia and Purdue University. So she spent time at both places and she came in to talk to me. And again, you know, the half hour meeting ended up being an hour and a half because I started talking to her about the polytechnic and the transformation of an undergraduate learning experience. And she says like, you know, there's a meeting coming up in six months where they're going to invite a bunch of people from Purdue, and suddenly I'm the featured speaker, okay, because <laughs> she wants to lead with me to show what Purdue is doing, and this is why we need to uh, – and, you know, we're doing great things at Purdue, right? I mean, we're yeah. doing, you know, world-changing kinds of research, and there's all kinds of really cool things, but she's been here for three or four months learning about Purdue – and she comes and talks to me, and all suddenly I'm, you know, going to be leading, you know, the 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 workshop that's going to be put on in six months, and um, it's it's humbling to to know that um, there's this, this resonates with so many people, um, but you know, it's I, it's not easy though. Okay, I mean, this is a very very difficult thing because we're changing from within. And so, you know, talk's cheap, right? I mean, the the vision sounds good. It's actually how we go about implementing it. So these questions you're asking about the details of the competency base, these are all the questions that we, you know, need to hear because we need to answer them as we go forward. But it is definitely a work in progress. And I think that whatever we come up with in three years probably is going to change in five years because, um, you know, that's what it's like when you're in this pioneering environment. You're you're blazing the trail, okay? Right. And you, there's really no peers to, to look at. And, and so you do the best you can. But um, anecdotally and um, what I would call external validation, you know, is coming every time I talk to someone about what it is we're proposing – Right. So, right. Now you mentioned the, the sort of T-shaped technologist, Mm -hmm. I guess. Can can you talk a bit about in this, in this environment of constant change, which is really what you're describing, trying Mm -hmm. to educate, uh, individuals to, to, uh, succeed in a world of, of constant technological and societal change, how the sort of the idea of the, the T-shaped, uh, individual, uh, applies Mm -hmm. to that? Sure. So, uh, let me quickly explain. Um, what a T-shaped professional is. So you think of the letter T, all right? And so the vertical is the knowledge in a particular domain. And so that would be a technology or an engineering discipline, right? And, And the United States does that part 
better than anyone in the world. That's why we're flooded with uh, international students. That's why countries like Colombia come to us, right? Okay, that so there really isn't a lot of problems with the vertical of the T. It's it's the crossing of the T. So the horizontal are skills such as teamwork, communications, um, being able to work with data and technology, and appreciation of diverse cultures, uh, advanced literacy skills, self-directed learning, um, effective communication. You know, and the only way that you can really do that effectively across all students, not ones that kind of accidentally do it or have some natural aspirations, is you have to integrate the liberal arts, the math, and the science into the, the context, the vertical, the, the deep technical knowledge, if you will. And so that's the theory behind the T. Well, we actually have taken that T and we've created it three-dimensionally. Big surprise given my background, right? So, right. so if now if you look at the depth of the T across that dimension or that axis, you have the methodologies that you employ in order to create the proper learning environment for this T-shaped professional. So we've taken the methodology to be student-centered uh, teaching, cross-functional learning, contextualized learning, um, learn by doing. Uh, this is where you get into internships, co-curricular activities, and industry-driven curricula. So that's the, the third dimension. And if you put that all together, you've now really defined the 21st century technologist, um, or you, you've defined what it really means to create a 21st century version of the polytechnic. Right. And, and so that's the idea behind the T-shaped graduate. And so what you do is you create these learning environments around technical disciplines like computing or construction or, or whatever. And um, you create this new learning environment. And that's what we believe the 21st century uh, needs. And if you look at um, – there's a, there's a couple of interesting books that um, – like to refer to um, one is called Generation on a Tightrope. Okay, and um, that one uh, they did a survey of college freshmen at twenty different universities, one of which happened to be Purdue. But this goes every from you know community colleges to you know places like Purdue, and they they surveyed um, I don't know how many thousands of students across these twenty universities, and then they came up with their. Um, the recommendations of what higher ed had to do, well, the generation of, of students that are coming out of high schools right now are very, very different. I mean, they're called digital natives, right? And, uh, you know, they, they, they basically live technology. Um, they also have dis different aspirations, um, different motivations. And so when you start factoring that in, you end up with, um, a different learning environment that's necessary to really motivate these students to do um, what is necessary for the 21st century. And um, and then the other book is called Creating Innovators. And, and this book has a basic premise that um, humanities, uh, humanity or human beings by nature are actually very creative, but our K-12 system now is set up 
really to prepare test takers, okay? Mm-hmm. Because that's what you have to do in order to be successful. And schools are evaluated on how well that they do measured against every other school, right, on English competency and math ability and all that. And the only way they can do it is by testing them and you end up right. teaching to the test. And so you're, you're actually driving out the, the kids' uh, creativity and you have to build that back up. That's one of the reasons we have a theater professor in our freshman uh, experience so right. that we can focus on the creativity and bring that back in and show the students you actually very, are very creative and how to unlock that. But that all goes into this idea of this T-shaped uh, professional. Right. Well, and along with that, I, my, my thought is that, uh, uh, for instance, with the, the PE license, you earn the PE license, but then you have to do continuing education to yes. uh, keep it uh, current. Yes. Uh, and so, whereas <laughs> my earlier statement was, are we, uh, or potentially is this digital badging uh, lessening the value of the university? Mm-hmm. I can also see it enhancing the value of the university if these uh, competencies and these credentials are uh, have a life cycle just like the uh, the degree programs. Yeah. Well, and, the, go ahead. No, I was going to say. Think about this. You know, we all as professionals, we we start creating our resumes, right? Okay, and we keep on building on that. Well, what if you started your resume once you graduated from your competencies? Okay, in other words, the transcript that your competencies becomes the starting point for your resume. And then what you do is you add on it. You keep on adding on it over your career. And so you become deeper and richer in certain areas. Some other areas might fade away a little bit. But the competencies now become the the, the um, foundation of the resume that you create. And, and we haven't talked about this, but, um, you know, people are always saying, you know, we need lifelong learners. You actually can't teach lifelong learning. You, you know, you can't teach someone to be a lifelong learning because lifelong learning is based on someone's motivation, right? And, and you, what you have to do is you have to help the student to understand what their passion might be by giving them these experiences and eventually they will lock into what they're very passionate about. And there's very few students that actually know what their passion is when they come in as freshmen. Uh, this is one of the best kept secrets that there are. Do you have any idea how many, on average, in this nation, how many times a student switches majors? Three times. No, I have not a clue. It's like five. Duh. Wow. Whoa. It's, it's unbelievable. It's the best kept secret in the country. <laughs> And, and it's because they don't know what the hell they want when they come out of high school. And that's not a big surprise, right? But if you, if you create the right kind of learning environment, they can find their passion. And because, you know, it almost doesn't matter what their major is. If you, if you open up their eyes as far as what the major is capable of doing, more than likely they would stick in the major anyways because they could, they suddenly find out, well, actually biology, I, I, I actually can use biology for my passion and um, um, sustainability, right? Well, actually, you could do the same thing in civil engineering, right, with sustainability. There's a, a lot of ways that you can um, become successful and, you know, um, 
become passionate because there's so many ways of applying these degrees. It's not just one narrow thing, but we tend to get into just, well, you're going to be a civil engineer, so you have to learn all these fundamentals of civil engineering. And we spend all this time kind of building up your your um, expertise in civil engineering, but at the end of the day is, well, what exactly am I going to do this? Am I going to build bridges? Am I going to create water systems that will save lives in Africa? I mean, that's, you know, what, what's really going to be your passion? Well, we don't spend a lot of time uh, helping them to do that. And um, that's part of this initiative too is, is creating lifelong learners by matching it up to their passion. And um, that can only be done by giving them the kinds of experiences that are open-ended and challenging them to actually look for different ways of applying what it is that they're learning. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, and perhaps that's a, a good place for us to uh, wrap up uh, this episode. We've, uh, we've taken up a good portion of your time this evening and uh, certainly do appreciate that. I can talk forever on this. You better <laughs> cut me off while you have the chance. <laughs> All right. Well, well so if, uh, if people are interested in, uh, uh, in the Polytechnic or mm-hmm. uh, getting a hold of you or, or you know, pers- finding out more about this, uh, uh, these ideas, uh, sure. where might we send them? Well, um, you know, we, they, you can go to Purdue and you can go to the College of Technology's website. There's links there to the Polytechnic and there's a lot more information um, if, if you can't tell, um, over this last hour and a half, I am very passionate about this topic and I actually, right. I actually do like talking to people about it because the more I talk to them, the more I can better understand and refine what it is we're doing. So if they want to contact me directly, just, uh, send an email to Bertolini at purdue.edu and I'll do my best to respond. Um, so either way um, would be fine. And I'd be interested in, in talking to anyone else about this topic. Yeah, your, your passion definitely comes through as you talk about it. You can tell it means a lot to you. Yeah, yeah. This is an opportunity of a lifetime. And I um, I really need to add this. The president of the university, Mitch Daniels, really gets this. And he's been extremely supportive of us. And uh, so it's, it's it's nice to have the upper administration really rally around this idea because it's not without risks, as I told you before. Mm-hmm. This is high risk, but hopefully high reward. Fingers crossed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Toes too. <laughs> right. I'm not that flexible. But but I, I try. <laughs> I, I've uh, thank you by the way for this opportunity, uh, and I've, I've enjoyed uh, talking to all of you about this. Well, thank you so very much for spending some time with us. We do appreciate it. Sure thing. If you ever want to follow up, just let me know. Definitely. I've got plenty. Of, I've got plenty of material. <laughs> <laughs> As the first class hits the halfway point. Yes. Yes, that's right. So, okay. Well, thank you, everyone. Have a good all night. All right. Good night. Uh, good Take night care. now. Yep. Thank you. Good night. Bye. The Engineering Commons is produced in affiliation with Big Beacon, a social movement for transforming engineering education, located on the web at bigbeacon.org. For more information about the podcast you've just heard, please visit theengineeringcommons.com. Our theme music is by Paul Stevenson.